When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping the global debate. As a columnist for the Financial Times, most of my discussions are off the record, then used as background for my columns. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record, so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. What conflict should we be concerned about in 2020? That's the question posed by the International Crisis Group in a recent article called 10 Conflicts to Watch in 2020. And it's striking that three of the places they highlight are in the Sahel region of Africa, specifically Ethiopia, Burkina Faso and Libya. Some even argue that the whole region is threatened by interlocking problems of militancy, poverty, climate change and cross-border conflicts. To discuss what's going on and what can be done about it, I'm joined by the International Crisis Group's Africa Programme Director, Comfort Arrow. Comfort, welcome to the FT. It does strike me that, you know, that you, you in the report highlight three countries in the Sahel region, but you could equally add others that are in, in some trouble, Nigeria, South Sudan, Niger, mm-hmm. Cameroon. So it seems pretty justified to say that this is a region in crisis. It is a region in crisis. And for crisis groups since 2013, We have ramped up our own focus on the Sahel. We've also continued to work in Sudan and South Sudan, and more recently in Ethiopia. I think it is a recognition both of the fragility of the Sahel, but also the spillover of Libya's own conflict as well, that you're now seeing not only a conflict in a country, but spreading. So they're no longer self-contained, but they've become transnational cross-border conflicts despite seven years, for example, of French intervention. Also regional forces coupled with the United Nations presence in Mali. You're seeing jihadi groups have been able to respond to that military pressure. They've become more agile, become more mobile. They're able to adapt and realign themselves despite sustained international and regional pressure that is coming militarily as well. And if you're looking at the common factors, I mean, I'm Mm. sure each of these countries have their own intricate politics, Mm. but the things that are regional, you mentioned jihadist militancy. Is that the biggest one? Because other people are also looking at, I don't know, things like climate change or... It's climate change, migration. I mean, each of these countries has the same sort of general sense of underdevelopment, the centre problems, uh, whether the state is very much absent. So if you look at where the pockets of crisis are in Burkina Faso or where you're seeing an increase in violence, it's no surprise that these are places that are very far removed from governance, far removed from national authorities. So a lot of these are on the borders of each of the countries, far rural places. Away from the coast generally? Well, I mean, coastal West Africa Mm. will face a different set of crises this year. Mm. Demographics is at play, the youth bulge is at play, migration is at play. 
the fragility of the economy is at play, a general sense of a crisis of governance as well. And so, I mean, if you look at somewhere like Burkina Faso, which is worryingly on the verge of collapse, it's a twin crisis there, or even triple crisis, rural insurgency, social unrest linked to the government, but also as a result of the spillover from the Malian crisis as well. And give us a sense of the, the human consequences. I mean, are we talking about people at risk of starvation or people being killed directly by military conflict, people on the move, displaced people, or combinations of all of that? I mean, if you look at the, the figures now, um, one figure that we've been looking at very closely is the one by the group called Armed Conflict Location and Event Data. And when you look at the figures that they provide, it's quite staggering and it shows you why Burkina is really in trouble today. So at the start of last January 2019, we had about 90,000 internally displaced. Today, we're looking at 600,000 out of a population of 20 million. You're also seeing at least 2,000 schools have been closed down as a result of the violence in the country. The civilian casualties, we're likely to see an upward trend this year. You're also seeing the military itself being heavily hit by jihadists, but also being a perpetrator of the violence as well. And as a result, I think the military's own inability to respond effectively to the crisis, you've seen a rise of self-defense militia groups, vigilantes, who've taken it upon themselves to deal with the crisis. We've seen a shift from Mali, which was the center of the storm, to Burkina, which has now become the new center of crisis. And the reason why Crisis Group has put it on its conflicts to watch globally and conflicts to watch for the European Union and also for the African Union is because Burkina in itself is a gateway to coastal West Africa. And there's a real concern that jihadi groups may see it as a launching pad to gain other footholds into coastal West Africa as well. Another country that you list is Ethiopia, which yeah. is interesting because mm-hmm. it was seen as this beacon of hope last year. Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister, got given the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts at peacemaking and democratization. And yet, as you say, things could go quite badly wrong. Why is that? I mean, let's start with the good news, which is if you look at the situation which Prime Minister Abiy came into, there was a period of mass protest against corruption, against economic decline, a real crisis of confidence against the state between 2015 to 2018. And this is what brought him into power. And he's moved very, very quickly to liberalise the country, to open up the space and to put on the table a number of reform issues that have been at the centre of crisis in the country. But with every transition, there come upheavals. And I think one of the biggest consequences of Abiy's own sort of initiatives is it's sort of opened up a Pandora's box you know, of ethno-nationalism in the country. His desire to reform the ruling party, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, has spurred on a number of anxieties, particularly within his own base. Notice the contestation between one of his ally-stroke opponents, Mohamed Jawah, in October, which led to violence in Oromo area. And so this is generating a lot of anxiety as to Abiy's intentions in terms of the future of the party. His decision to want to merge it from a four sort of regional state coalition groupings to a more unified national party to remove the ethnic undertones from it. It's causing anxiety. And just taking a step back, Mm -hmm. because, I mean, Ethiopia, unlike Burkina, even before the political good news, Mm -hmm. a country that has been held up as a economic success story. It was growing very rapidly. But right now, the economy is on life support. 
I mean, one of the big challenges for Abbey is around economic reform. It's around sort of liberalising the economy. It's taking it from a developmental state and finding a way in which to deal with bread and butter issues. The very reasons that the country went into crisis and the very reasons why we had mass protests between 2015 and 2018, those fault lines still very much exist and really are around socioeconomic challenges. He has to find a million jobs every single year for a a large sort of youthful population who are very agitated, who want to see change, want to see transformation and see Abby as representing that as well. And he has to placate and find a way in, in which to deal with you know the four major ethnic groupings in the country, you know the Tigres, the former dominant force, his own party, and also the Amhara grouping as well. So some people have even raised the analogy of Yugoslavia, yeah. i.e. the breakup of the country amidst violence. Is that yeah. possible? I mean, look, we wrote a, a report recently, and yes, we acknowledge the Yugoslavia scenario. It's very real. Those who are long-time watchers of, of Ethiopia have made those predictions. And I think those predictions were because of the huge violence that we're seeing in the country as well, the most latest been in October. And also the rise, as I said, of this ethno-nationalism, regional leaders now vying for claim on the state as well. At the same time, Abiy himself and a number of other actors in the country, one of the big issues that we're asking them is to also find a way in which to sort of calm the tensions down. So, yes, that scenario is very real, but there's also a sense in which a number of the actors at play see the dangers of of that happening as well. And earlier in the conversation, you you mentioned Libya and the way in which the destabilisation of that country, I mean, when was Gaddafi killed? It was 2011. 2011, yeah. And it's really not settled down then. There's a kind of civil war. Now you've got foreign actors involved. But... One thing I hadn't completely picked up on until I started reading your stuff is the extent to which there's now this interplay between this band of weak nations, weak countries in the Sahel and what's going on in Libya. How how are the two things affecting each other? So it's interesting to say that because even the UN panel for Libya in one of its latest reports outlined the foreign elements. I mean, yes, we've always been concerned about Chadian mercenaries or Sudanese fighters linked to Darfur been able to cross over into Chad and play a key role for either side. We do now have a number of foreign elements who can be bought. If you look at Libya from the perspective of the Sahel, and if you look at it particularly from the view of Enjinima, the the Chadian capital, the one thing that that worries President Deby is the fact that southern Libya itself has become a haven for rebellions against his own regime. So in 2008, and also more recently, last February, the rebellions that rose against him were dotted around that southern Libya area and northern Chad area, but also the border with eastern Chad into Sudan. It's become an area for rebellion for him as well. In terms of looking at what triggered the Malian crisis, a number of observers will mention that Libya was a key um, in terms of the return of a number of fighters coming back into Mali, um, the trigger also for Niger and the vulnerability of the border of Niger, Chad and Mali today and even Sudan. They're looking very much at the escalation of Libya and what that means for the region as well. Mm. Now, I guess sort of for non-specialists listening to this, uh, a lot of them might say, well, you know, how new really is all this? You, we've kind of vaguely associated these countries with uh, with crisis, with famine over the years. Isn't this just like Africa as, as usual? Look, I think what is significant is that we are seeing the hyper-militarization of response to the crisis in the Sahel. And it's the role, I think, also of key international actors 
I mean, these aren't local conflicts anymore. These have become internationalized conflicts as well, because the role of France and the role of Europe, the increased presence of, of European forces. We've gone from the G5 Sahel regional force sponsored by France to now France and Germany announcing a new initiative, a new recognition that even its own efforts, as I said, seven years of intervention, whether in the form of the French Burkan force or whether in the form of the UN forces, and that neither of these have delivered, neither of these have been able to deal with counterterrorism, none of these have been able to deal with their concerns around migration, and so they've come up with another approach. Meanwhile, the region itself, particularly in the regional body, ECOWAS, suddenly realising that it also needs to find a way in, in which to deal with this crisis. So the upshot of this is that this month, on the 13th of January, France is calling the regional heads of states of the Sahel to Paris to evaluate the Sahel strategy. This is also in a context where France has found itself under heavy criticism from the various Sahelians that it's supposed to be helping. So this is not just Africa as usual. The reason why we focus on the Sahel is because, as I said, Sahel sits in between the very precarious situation that's happening in Libya, but also coastal West Africa, which has lurched from crisis in Liberia and Sierra Leone, a period of stability, to now where we may see in 2020 an uptick in political crisis because we've got a number of important elections coming up on the horizon, so Ivory Coast, Guinea. And then the biggest player in the region, Nigeria, faces multiple crises that themselves can easily be connected through to the Sahel into the Lake Chad Basin, through to Chad. So you can see two of West Africa's important economic hubs will face very testing times this year. And last thing, stepping back from this year, but then looking to the the next decades, there is a kind of gloomy scenario that you'll be very familiar with, which is doing the rounds, which says things are only going to get worse, actually, because these countries are in the middle of a big population boom. The population could double in the next 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. They're not creating the jobs. Mm -hmm. The environment's becoming more and more stressed. So in a kind of gloomy way, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is going to get worse. I mean, look, we've made these projections in the past about the continent. But I also say that that there are multiple narratives at play on the continent. There are pockets of reform. There are pockets of progress. You know, there are countries that that are not in crisis. I think that the key thing is how you shield those countries from seeing the effect of Amali spilling over to Burkina, spilling over to Niger, spilling over to other places. Which would you point to as the success stories? Um, Ghana. I think it's important to to continue to look at Ghana, even Senegal as well. And not all of Nigeria is in trouble. So there are pockets of stability in Nigeria. I mean, Lagos remains a, a stable hub. And despite the concerns around Ethiopia, you know, a number of observers also recognise that the real potential for Ethiopia domestically, but also for the region, I think it's worth paying attention to both Ethiopia, but Sudan as well. If we're able to sort of turn the corner, and this is a big if, because they're both fragile, there are a number of a number of negatives against them that far outweigh the, the positives. But imagine a scenario where you can begin to engineer change from within and what that would mean for the entire region and the continent as well. Okay, well, we'll end with that note of relative hope. So thank you very much indeed, Comfort, and have a good year ahead. Thanks. Thanks a lot. That was Comfort Aero, head of the International Crisis Group's Africa programme. And that's it for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash Rachman Review. Until next week, goodbye.